our typical resident is about 50 years old, man with no family. They've either wrote them off, the 20 years he's been in jail, they wrote them off, or they passed away. So they, they get out of prison with very little to no money, with no family societal connections, and then we put them on the street. So here you go. Again, how do you succeed? Welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast. I'm Shalane, and we're here to discuss big questions about poverty in bite-sized ways. Joining me today is Joseph Lauren, Founding Program Director for Restorative Justice Housing Ontario. Joseph works in the field of restorative justice and the provision of housing for ex-prisoners committed to reform, and he serves as an example of the power and the positives that can come from second chances. Joseph is both a former lawyer and the first person in Canada to serve a federal sentence of imprisonment for insider trading, an ordeal that included two stays in maximum security prisons and jails in Canada and the U.S. Joseph, welcome to the podcast. You've got a fascinating story, and I'm eager to jump in and uh, spend some time with you today. Great to be here. I almost can't live up that introduction, so I might want to end the interview right now and just start with the introduction and finish with it also. But uh, thank you for inviting (laughs) me. Uh, Let's see how this interview goes. Uh, As I tell everyone that, that speaks to me, I said, there's no question I won't answer truthfully. So mm. if you have a question on your mind, you think, well, it might be awkward to ask that. You can ask it. I will give you a straight answer. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. And let's start. Let's jump right in then with our our opening question. Joseph, what does it mean to thrive? Well, that's a, a good question. In, in my own life, I'm thinking about that. I've been in situations where everything is going objectively very well. I'm making tremendous amounts of money, happy, family life is doing great. And in periods of my life where Everything is going objectively terribly. For example, in you know maximum security prison, feeling you know mm. abused and, and destitute and, and everything else negative. And in both those situations, I felt that I thrive best when I was problem solving. And that's why mm. what I love about my current position with restorative justice housing is that there's always problems presenting themselves because we're a new organization just from scratch. There's no manual or following what, the, what we do. So I've things pop up and I try to solve them on the fly and see they, where they go. And that's always exciting for me. And sometimes when, when a problem does work out, I, I sit back and go, wow, I can't believe it worked out the way I wanted it to, just from effort or ingenuity in some sense, or taking different resources to help. So that's how I thrive. And I feel the most satisfaction is finding problems, maybe problems that other people don't want to even accept. I take mm-hmm. them on to see what I can do with them. And I feel better for the effort, but also better for, for accomplishing something for someone else generally. Now, your story has had multiple opportunities for you to solve problems, it would seem. Yes. So I've given our listeners just a little taste of some of what your story is, but just share with us, what what's your background? How mm-hmm. did you come to the place that you're at today? Well, I, I was a lawyer in Ontario, a corporate securities mm-hmm. lawyer, and my story started uh, in a sort of quasi-innocent way. So I just started articling, and articling is a process in, in Ontario where you have to work for about a year for a law firm before you can become a lawyer. And uh-huh. I was in the, the firm's uh, main foyer with about 20 other articling students waiting to get orientation. It was, our, it was either our first or second day of, of work. And I saw another, a summer student at that firm. This is a very large uh, Toronto firm, probably the largest in Canada at that time. And he's wearing white leather driving shoes walking around. And he comes near me and I say, you know, why are you wearing these white leather driving shoes in this office? It's sort of inappropriate wear. And he said, well, I just bought a car with money I made on a deal that I'd been working on. I took that to mean that 
he had made money inside trading on information he had in the firm. I phoned my friend who was working at another firm, my best friend at another firm, and I told the story. And neither actually remembers what happened at that point, but one of us must have said, let's try it too. So we started getting mm. into inside trading. And the very first deal we made, we made $181, insignificant amount. But within two years, we were making millions of dollars a trade in a sense. So making millions of dollars a month. The slippery slope wow. is real. We sort of went into it mm. almost as a lark without ever, I, I honestly, we never thought about making a lot of money or the consequences of just something to do that may be interesting. Well, let's see what happened. This guy did it. Maybe we can get a car out of it sort of thing. The same way with mm. both young guys. And the slippery slope is real. It became, it became our relationship in a sense. It's what we did. It, it consumed huh. us. And then at a point in time, we we're making so much money, we were worried about ever getting caught because we knew the punishment would be very severe. So now we're obsessed with you know, making money, but also avoiding uh, being identified and getting caught. And this you know, led to adventures around the world. I'm flying around setting up accounts around the world, dealing with quasi-shady people until everything blew up at the end. And uh, you know, I had a very dramatic ending with my, my co-accused, which we, we can mm. get into. But uh, So from mm. where it started to where it ended, I never saw it coming. Mm. And uh, it just became too much. And it, it, so you know, there's so many stories with it, with it, within that path we took. But uh, mm. when, I, when people say you should choose your past carefully, carefully in life where they might lead, because you never know where they might lead. This really was an innocent first step. And it led to eventually my, my co-accused committing suicide and then my doing time in a, a bunch of wow. uh, maximum security prisons in Canada and some time in the U.S. Wow. That is, that is a harsh ending for your co-accused. Um, you've shared some of your story with me in terms of being incarcerated. Mm -hmm. You received a very harsh penalty. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, for Canada, I, I, again, I'm, if you go to Wikipedia and you type in insider trading, they have like, the list of different countries and their rules, and then people have been convicted yeah. under those. Uh, you know, I, I did it one day as a lark. I, I went in and saw it. And you go to Canada, you scroll over, and it's just my name. I'm the only person to get a federal sentence of imprisonment for insider trading in Canada. So it, I sort of feel like that's not something you really want to be the only person to have you, had. You don't. Well, I don't want other people to suffer my fate, like you know, misery loves company mm. situation. So I, under, I understand mm -hmm. that. So it just, I just unusual. I think the the regulators and the authorities have just made a conscious decision that after me, they didn't have any convictions before me for the longest uh. time, and then they changed the legislation, and then they. They were able to convict me, and I think they were going to celebrate or promote it, you know, this new success. But then my co-accused committed suicide the day b before he was going to be sentenced. So they sort of just mm. didn't uh, trumpet it up as an accomplishment for the regulators. You know, we've caught these these pe people, and I think they decided after that point to just uh, proceed in a regulatory manner, so that they would just, if they found someone they thought was guilty, they would coerce in the sense that you know we could prosecute you or you can pay this fine or and give up these certain rights and not you know public company rights right. etc so i think right. just consciously have decided not to prosecute people criminally i think because it's easier and they have a, mm. a perfect record a one and oh record with, with myself now and the, i think you know the, the human scale they don't want some other lawyer or someone else to commit suicide also because of the prosecution of them for insider trading because mm. I, I recall the the prosecutor after he found out my co-accused committed suicide, I was very distraught. But he was also speaking to the judge. He was very emotional and uh, about the situation. Mm. I think he never saw that that was one of the possibilities of this prosecution right. of both of us. And I think he saw himself in some ways in my co-accused because he's obviously a lawyer. And my co-accused is a lawyer also. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. that's why I believe I am the only one. It's not because no one is committing that similar crime in Canada or the United States, for example. Sure. I, I believe it's actually yeah. more common now because information is more easy to access 
be through computers mm. and, and other, other devices of that nature. Whereas before when mm-hmm. we did it, we actually, we called it spelunking, which means cave diving. My co accused would mm. actually go from office to office door through garbage cans, through printer fax, you know, uh, print fax machines, uh, photocopy machines. We actually do it that way. And there was some computer element to it, wow. but not as common as today where I could, if I could hack your computer, if you're a partner in a law firm or a partner in it, or a, a, a president of a, of a corporation, if I can get into that, I can see what you're working on. That would be good, good enough to tra- start trading on making money from. Mm, wow. That sounds like another whole podcast for <laughs> in a different direction. It's very very <laughs> so, different direction, yes. Yes, very different direction. Um, I do want to come back to your experience that happened within your prison time. Yes. Because to me, that feels foundational. It is. And I know as we've chatted, mm-hmm. uh, being very foundational to why you're so passionate about yes. restorative justice housing now. Well, I'll tell you the story. It's a difficult story for me to tell uh, because of where I was. So at th- that point in time, I found myself at Kingston Penitentiary, which was then mm. Canada's oldest operating maximum security prison. It's since been closed. But when I was there, it was mm. well over 100 years old and it looked it. So the bars were dark brown, you know, for the old timey movie type of looks to it. The floors were mm-hmm. burned from previous riots, like tear gas canisters burning the floors. It was February and it was freezing cold. So we had windows on one side of the range and a range is a collection of cells. So there'd be... Uh, 15 mm-hmm. cells on the bottom and 15 cells on top of them. And they'd all face the windows straight ahead. And the windows were broken. So guys would take off their extra shirts and stick them in the holes of the windows to stop the snow and the cold from coming in. And we, wow. I remember we had one television for 30, 30 men. We had one 10-inch black and white TV for 30 guys. And only the guys straight in front of the TV, their cells, could see it. But everyone else could hear it, which I found sort of torture in a, in a way because you'd hear a show was on, but you couldn't see oh, yeah. it. You'd, you'd just hear a glimpse. Of, and in prison, no one's going to spend the time or the money to give you batteries to do the to television converter, to change the channels, the channel changer. So what the guys did, so ingeniously, they stuck strings into the TV and the, and they run the, the, the kite strings. They run it back to the cell about maybe 10, 15 uh, meters away. And he would pull the strings up and down to make the channels go up and down. And then two more strings to do the volume up and down. And every once in a while, when the guards are walking through, they would kick the string, maybe on purpose, sometimes accidentally. And then the next guy who would go out of their cell for shower time or phone time, he had to reassemble the strings and put them in the TV, which I found insane because I was was in cell 10 and really only six, seven, and eight could see the TV. I could just hear it all the time. I found it. I I wish the Mm. TV was broken a lot of the times. It was was just like a a glimpse of the outside world, but I couldn't really get a full appreciation of it. Mm. So it became, in a way, in a torture. So I'm there uh, and I'm there uh, for about a month when the guards come to me and they say, hey, do you want to be the cleaner? Now, the cleaner in a a prison like that, your job is to, what the word says, you clean the floors and you hand out the food trays. And Mm -hmm. uh, at that time in that prison, you would be locked up 23 hours and 40 minutes a day by yourself in the cell. But the cleaner, he could be out about eight to 10 hours a day to clean the cell. And I wanted Mm -hmm. that job because I wanted to be able to call my kids either before school or after school. I had a five-year-old and a seven-year-old at that time. And mm. you never know when your cell will be open up for shower time or phone time. So, But if you were the cleaner, you could use the phone whenever you wanted if you're out for those eight or ten hours. So I volunteered uh-huh. for it, and uh, I took that job in cleaning and handing out the food trays. And the guys in this, this uh, range, uh, they were the toughest group I've ever been around. Really hard guys. And they knew I didn't belong, didn't really fit in. You certainly, I can tell you, the hierarchy of prisons – you know, at the top mm. is not insider traders. We're somewhere near the no. bottom. No, not a lot the of The white collar guy? Not, no, not, not a lot of That's not it? No, not a lot of respect for that. They, I think they thought okay. I would. Uh, uh, so anyway, so I'm handing out the trays. The guys are riding, making fun of me. And one particular inmate named Frankie, a young guy, big guy, 
who'd been a long, everyone knew him. So he'd been there in prison a long time, been through the system a long time. He starts riding me in a way that was over the line. He, he's implying that I'm a pedophile. That's why I'm there. Because I'm, you know, white, mm. white collar looking guy. And that's what he, so I promised myself when I went into prison that I would never let people abuse me or take advantage of me. I'd rather like take a beating than let someone exploit me or do something mm. like that. So I remember I pushed back at Frankie and I wish I could remember what I said to him, but I clearly crossed the line also. And I did it in a way that everyone here heard me, you know, push back against Frankie. And then all of a sudden he said loud enough for all 30 guys to hear when my cell gets cracked open. And that means when my cell is open for shower time, which was going to yeah. happen soon. I'm going to come over to your cell and my cell is unlocked because I'm the cleaner. He goes, I'm going to come over to your cell and I'm going to kill you. And he now in prison and he said it loud enough for everyone here. So he's at least obligated to try to kill me when his cell is opened up because his reputation is now on the line. All mm. the range then breaks out and yelling because they, they, it's very boring in prison. So they know they're going to, there's going to be a fight in the next five, 10 minutes. Mm. You're going to see a fight. And I remember guys and they're betting in this fight to be, and I remember I was three bags of chips to one underdog. I heard someone say, I'll bet you three bags against one that Joe, Joseph's going to get effed up, right? So uh, I knew, oh so no one's, no one's thinking I'm going to win this fight. So I go back to my cell and I turn off the light. And again, my cell is open. Everyone else is still locked up at this point. And I was not a religious person at all, but I started praying. And I knew mm. because I knew nothing good was going to come of what's going to happen next. Either I somehow win this fight which is unlikely. But if I, if it happens, I'm probably gonna be injured a great deal. And I'm gonna get more prison time before having a fight mm. in prison. And, and that'll keep me from my children much longer than I would be. Or more likely, I'm going to be maimed or killed as Frankie wants to do. And I'm sure he's very good at it. So as I'm praying, 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 and then I say, uh, all of a sudden, I remember saying it out, out loud, either out loud in my mind, that it was clear, or I said it out loud in myself. I don't know why I did it. But I said, uh, God, if you can help me get through this, I promise to take some good from the bad of my life to help other people. And as mm. soon as I said that, there was an explosion of metal that I never heard before. Bang! And then another explosion of metal. Bang! And then feet started stomping towards myself, boom, 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 right towards my cell. And I go, oh my, I didn't know what's going on. I go, Frankie must be coming here with some other guys to, to finish me off sort of thing. Right. So I, I put my arms up getting ready. And all of a sudden, a hand reaches out across the, the side of the, the front of my cell and grabs my cage door and pulls it shut with a bang and it clangs lock. And then one, two, three, four, five correctional officers run past my cell door down the hall. And as soon as I catch my breath, I'm sorry, I got chills right now because I think about it. I catch my mm. breath. I push my face hard against the bars to look down the hall to see what's going on. And I see two officers carrying a stretcher and they're in my view. And all of a sudden, they go out of my view. And then a few moments later, they come in my view. And on that stretcher, a person's flailing around. It was Frankie, the guy who was going to fight me shortly when his cell was open, having an epileptic seizure on the stretcher. They carry him away. No. Yep, they carry him away. I never see him again. The other guys in the range, because I handled the food, they thought I poisoned him. And they never bothered me again. Oh, my goodness. Within a few days, uh, I have a parole hearing. And I'm only the second person at Kingston Penn. At, at that point, I moved over to a prison called Fenbrook. Only the second person in five years to win my parole hearing. I'm released from the from prison. They drive me to Toronto. A week later, I'm seeing my kids in a park, playing my kids in a park. So within like seven, eight days, this whole thing, from thinking I'm going to die, I'm with my kids again. That's Miraculous. phenomenal. Now, I used to say, I don't know if that was an incredible coincidence or divine mm. intervention, but I know mm. at that moment in time, I made a promise. It, it was The timing was right on point that I would take some good to help other people from the bad of my own, my own experience. And mm -hmm. that's the promise I tried to keep. When I got out of prison, mm -hmm. so when I heard mm -hmm. about someone was making a documentary on white collar crime prevention, I volunteered mm -hmm. for that. And my story became part of this 
movie called uh, Collard, C-O-L-L-A-R-E-D. And right. when I found out about restorative justice housing was a new charity starting, they thought uh, to find houses in the private marketplace and rent them and then sublet rooms to ex-prisoners like mm-hmm. myself. And I volunteered for that. And uh, I remember being interviewed for the job. And I said, if you can find someone better than me, who's more perfectly suited for this job, after I tell mm-hmm. that story and my background as a lawyer and now as an ex-prisoner done time in maximum security prison, if you could find someone better than me, you should hire them. Because I honestly yes. think I'm called for this job to help other people. I think I'm the best at it or will be the best at it. Give me an opportunity. And they did give me an opportunity. And I feel grateful for that to this day. I know I've made mm-hmm. a difference in many lives. And that gives me a sense of satisfaction. In a sense, I'm thriving that way by giving an opportunity to thrive. And Absolutely. But for going to prison, obviously, I never would be doing this job. I would never have the experience that I've had but for. So I have to take that negative and try to fashion it to a positive, which I'm doing my best to do. And mm-hmm. here with you today, I'm, it's part of my sort of my calling in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard for me not to think that God intervened mm-hmm. and went before you in that, saved your life, because as you work with restorative justice housing, I, I know some of the stories mm-hmm. and I know that people's lives are being changed. I am wondering if some of our listeners maybe don't understand the importance of housing for people coming out of prison. Those who have been incarcerated, why is it so, why is that such an important work that you're doing? Uh, I can tell you in Canada, you can legally discriminate against someone for having a criminal record when it comes to housing. So if you apply for, you want to rent a a one bedroom or something, you have the money, you have the employment, you have everything else. They can say, you know what, they might Google you or do a criminal background check from 20, 30, 40 years ago. They can say, you know, you've been to prison for you. I'm not going to let you live here. Whatever the crime, whatever the offense. So And that's legal. Totally legal. Perfectly. It happened to me. When I got out of prison, mm-hmm. I could not find a place to live because I had at that point 10, 20,000 Google results against me. And I mm-hmm. only was able to get my first uh, apartment to rent. By the way, the government took all my money. So I have no money. I had millions of dollars. And I have zero money. I have nothing. So I get out mm-hmm. and I'm working in a law firm, you know, sort of gopher type job uh, starting from the bottom. And I, I entered a football pool and I actually co-won this football pool. It gave me $11,000. I used that to pay my entire year rent on my first apartment because I couldn't find it. I couldn't pass the background checks or anything else. And so I was, again, you say, again, blessed in some way, intervention in some way, which probably is true. But most guys don't get that opportunity. So they get out of prison. They might mm. scratch together money for rent, find a job, and they can still find nowhere to live. So what we you you're saying that you had to pay an entire year's rent yes. upfront in full in full and that's how you got that's a place. the only place the only way I could do it because that landlord you had a criminal record they originally rejected me I said look I want to take because people in Canada don't interact with people who have criminal records as much as the U S so they think the mm-hmm. worst so they think well I, if I put you here you're gonna murder everybody or something insane like that you know even though I'm a right. white white collar so I said look I know you're worried about that let me just I, I now have them I will pay you the entire year up front so you don't worry there's no risk to you in a sense I'm mm-hmm. a better tenant there's you don't worry about me not paying etc I'm a criminal right. quote-unquote criminal I'm gonna defraud you or something and but I was only fortunate I was very fortunate for that being in that position to do that most guys cannot so the no. homeless the home level of homelessness is much higher for ex-prisoners than than the general populace mm. obviously we, we mm-hmm. took one guy into our, our first house. He was living in a storage locker. He was renting a storage locker, like $300 a month for, for items. And he would sneak in at night and sleep in there because he couldn't wow. find a place to live. And we, yeah. took, and we took him into our house. And now this, you know, about three years later. So we took him in. We, he interacted with volunteers, basically socialized him in a, in a, in a way with other people because he's living on his own for, in a street person and in a storage locker at night. And now he has his own apartment. We, all we, did, we, mm. we moved him over there. We talked to the landlord for him and we guaranteed his lease. He pays the lease, but we guaranteed it. So again, to give him the credibility so that someone right. gave him a chance. Some guys, 
they want to reform, all they really want need and all they want is a chance from society. They don't want a life yeah. of crime. So, you know, some yeah. guys, they reach a point, I think most people reach a point where they go, I don't want that life anymore for myself, but also I don't want to affect people negatively anymore. Mm. Like in mm-hmm. my, my own case, I know family, friends were negatively impacted by my crime. Uh, mm. You know, the, 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 the reputational uh, damage, the stress and everything else. People think uh, criminals are sort of almost others, different than you, you and me, but they're the same as you and me. So they feel the same guilt they do, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and so they just want a That's second a chance. Point. They want a second yeah. chance to be productive members of society. I remember my goal at one point in time was to pay a lot in taxes, which is insane because I knew that <laughs> if I'm paying taxes, I'm back in society again. I'm contributing again right. to whatever You're earning. I'm earning. Yeah. I'm doing something positive, right? So that was yeah. my motivation. So I... You know, I'm not trying to avoid paying tax. I actually like it because it makes me feel, oh, look, I'm a legitimate person again. When okay, I, I think you're the first person I've I am ever first. spoken to who said, my goal is to pay taxes. But I, I love that. That's a beautiful way of thinking about it. I'm, I'm contributing. Yeah, so you, therefore, you, I you, get to pay taxes. You can't fake that. You can't fake that. So that, that, that is a sincere yeah. feeling you, you get. And, I, and again, most of our guys are like that in some degree. So the success mm-hmm. stories we've had, we, we've had people move in, they get stabilized, they maybe get started. I know one person, he connected with his family after 15 years and built mm-hmm. his relationship back up. A lot of them get employed. Now they have a place to live. They can shower, get you know, dress up, prepare for the interview, mm-hmm. go for a job. Whereas, you know, it's really hard to get a job if you're living on the street or living in a shelter. Yeah. It's dangerous. It's yeah. dirty. You can't, you know, little things like yeah. that. And I, and in, in the long run, it benefits society to give people second chances because, you know, mm-hmm. if you don't give them a second chance, what are they doing? Well, they're going to be on social assistance or committing crimes the rest of their days because just to survive, being candid, right? right? You give someone right. a second chance. In our in our case, our charity, you know, it's entirely donor finance. We get no government money whatsoever. And it mm-hmm. works out to, because we, we rent the, the whole house and we sublet rooms within it. And then we charge our, our ex-offender uh, uh, residents whatever they can pay. So if they're on disability payments mm-hmm. or Ontario Works, which is like a welfare program in Ontario, uh, we uh-huh. just take that amount. So that'd be say $390 a month for wealth, the, the housing allowance for the welfare program in Ontario. Now you can't rent another place for in Toronto example for $390 a month. You can't, but we take that oh, no. and we subsidize the difference. We, we cover the utilities, everything else, but it works out to all our, if we amortize it over all our residents, maybe about $500 a month that we're subsidizing per resident. When, mm-hmm. And you'd say mm-hmm. that is, I'm going to tell you that is far less than the government would spend giving housing to people. You know, they, yes. they would probably build a, build a house for them for, you know, $10 million and have four residents in there and manage mm-hmm. it, you know, full-time staff, full-time staff. I'm a part-time staff person and I, mm-hmm. I, I run the houses for them. We actually are expanding to women and we just hired a female program director and we're looking for mm-hmm. a house right now. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a, a shoestring operation. And, I, and I've always said we're always a goal focus. So our goal is to provide housing to ex-prisoners to rebuild their lives. And then how we get there is mm-hmm. how we get there. And sort of that's what I've been doing right. the last few years is, there's no manual I'm following. I'm just. Would do, that would that be the problem solving piece? That's out the problem again? solving piece. Can you imagine? Like, there you are. You go to a landlord and say, "Can I rent your house? I want to put four or five ex prisoners in your house." <laughs> no, don't worry about it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it'll be fine. <laughs> it'll be fine, fine, right? And they'll say, yeah. on the first house, they said, "Is one of them? A, will there any of them be murders?" I said, "Yes, of course." <laughs> it's like <laughs> almost like I'm thinking that. Like I know as ex prisoner, and, and a, a murderer is a lifer. That's actually a good mm. a good tenant to have. Because they know mm. if they screw up in any way, they go back to prison. Their 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 parole right. gets suspended. They go back at least two years, but usually six years. So when they said mm. they asked me that question, I go, I thought it was almost like, oh, I'm, I'm satisfying a need. Yes, of course there'll be murders here. They're lifers. <laughs> they're the best. They're the best uh, tenants, and they actually are the best tenants. But no one, but the general population, population yeah. would think them they're the worst tenants. They've killed somebody. Most people that commit that type of crime, it's a one-off situation. 
often drug related or a crime of passion mm. past, there are very few, you know, a serial killer types that get out on parole sure. that I'm going to put in, you know. And so uh, when I have volunteers that we, we bring to houses, I interact with the, the residents with volunteers. Sometimes they're afraid because they, they, they've never met someone who's been in prison before. Yep. And I would never put someone in a situation where I think you're, it's dangerous. And it never is. These are generally mm-hmm. just uh, our, our typical resident is about 50 years old. Uh, mm. man with no, no family. They, they've either abandoned them, you know, put, wrote, wrote them off the 20 years he's been in jail, they wrote them off or they passed away. So they, they get out of prison with very mm. little to no money and no family societal connections. And then we mm-hmm. put them on the street. So here you go. Now, yeah. how do you succeed? Right. And, and you know, yeah. it, it, it's, I always say it's very short sighted from the government and society standpoint to put people out there and give them, they don't want a hand out. They just want a little hand to tr- be treated mm-hmm. like everyone else. You know, mm-hmm. you or me, you'd say, I don't, I don't want you to pay for my apartment, but I have the rent money. I'm working. Can you let me at least rent your, your apartment at the same rate you're renting to everyone mm-hmm. else? That's all mm-hmm. they want. And, and that's what we provide. Right. Well, and it sounds to me like you're providing housing, but you're also providing community. When you talk about yes. people coming out having no one, then who do you turn to for support? So if you're bringing people into um, a system, a community, mm. then there's already a greater likelihood that there's, they're going to be able to thrive um, because they're going to have other people around them supporting them. So talk a little bit about sure. what does that support look like for someone above and beyond mm-hmm. the housing piece? All right. So let, we put a person in the house. We don't just leave them there. There's other, other residents in the house. We have communal meetings and communal meals. So, mm-hmm. that, so mm-hmm. I, I invest all the residents in the house with the success of the house. I always say this house will be as good as you guys make it. So if you make mm-hmm. it a friendly place where you're all supportive of each other, a safe place, it's going to be a great house. If you're, yeah. you, you still have the prison mentality of, you know, this is mine, don't touch it, or I'm not going to talk to you, whatever. It's going to, it's going to be just like maybe a halfway house or like another range in prison. So mm-hmm. once they get acclimated to the house, we introduce them to, obviously myself, our, our board members are all uh, uh, retired or had worked in the system in one degree or another, chaplains okay. and, and other people. So they interact yeah. with them so they can see them. Uh, the society is not a scary place. You know, we're not mm-hmm. judging you. We're going to, we'll judge you on your actions, not on your past. So we're going to see how you mm-hmm. go forward, not in the past. Mm-hmm. And then we have volunteers in the area. We have church groups nearby. They might, so I, I say to the volunteers, you do what you want to do with our guys, whatever makes you feel good. So generally it might be just driving to a food bank or a doctor's appointment or just mm-hmm. have a coffee with them, you know, just have someone mm-hmm. to chat with, you know, again, a lot of these people have no family, no friends when they get out, someone willing to have a coffee with them and, you know, hear their side of the story, their, their lives. I, I know it makes them feel really good because I know it made me feel really good. My friends were lawyers and, and people in business that time. When I got out of prison, they, you know, I was shunned by, let's say, 95% of the people that I interact with in the past because they don't want the taint of being with me. And that that's hurtful. Right. So when someone reaches out mm-hmm. to you and they say, let's, let's have a, t- a coffee, just a chat, it feels it makes you feel human in a sense. Again, you know, maybe I am redeemable because this mm-hmm. person who is has a respectable person in society by any objective measure wants to spend time with me an hour or two, whatever, chatting. That makes me feel oh. a little bit better. And it, it works for Absolutely. all our guys. You see it from all our guys. After they have a meeting with a volunteer, I, I'll reach out to them say, how did it go? And they'll have this long story about what they really liked. And we chatted about this. And it, it was You could never pre- plan what they're going to talk about or how, how they feel about it. Right. It just goes, in, you know, and, and I, that always, I go, wow, that was, that was fantastic. You know, I wanted more of these type of uh, arrangements with guys. And so mm-hmm. we've had people who are very quiet, very sullen, literally don't talk at all. Now, like a, a year and a half later. I get calls from them all the time just to chat. How's it going? How's it? Or on holiday, whatever the holiday is. Oh, how, uh, how's yeah. Valentine's Day? Whatever. So th- these people never talked to anybody for years. Now they're talking mm-hmm. to me and talking to volunteers. It became they became different people. And if they were scary in the past, quote unquote scary, they're not scary. They're like now a, a normal person 
a quote unquote mm-hmm. normal guy. I hit the quote unquote. Uh, you can't yeah, see it, but exactly. but they, they become as you would think a normal person, a normal neighbor you would have. Let's say you're living in a building sure. or, or next door neighbor. They're just a regular person who might help you yeah. take out the garbage or shovel or drive it. That's who they are right now. You wouldn't right. know. You wouldn't know they've been in prison, but for knowing they've been in prison. Let's put it that way. Yes. Yeah. Wow. What a beautiful opportunity for people to have those second chances, like you talk. You know, you talk about. Um, Tell us a little bit about how people can find out more about mm-hmm. restorative justice housing. Where are you? How did how how can we locate you? Okay. How can people get more information? This, this is a good sell. I'll have to, I'll have to, I'm sure my board <laughs> yeah. of directors will be paying attention right now. Have, hey, yes, don't, this is your big moment. This is my, don't screw this up now. We'll replace <laughs> Come you on, Joseph. with another inside <laughs> trader. And I say, oh yeah, go find one of those. You won't find another one like me. Um, uh, our website is rjho.ca. And it has a little mm-hmm. bit of our history. It has my, my story in there, some things I've written about, our members of our board, et cetera. All our houses mm-hmm. right now are in Toronto, on the in the southwest part of Toronto, a place called Etobicoke. And yep. we, we selected that area because it's near uh, public transit. There's a subway station nearby, mm-hmm. a GO station, mm-hmm. which is a train station nearby. Yep. It's accessible. The, the neighborhood is, is sort of a middle-class type neighborhood area where guys can... I, I always, When I select the house, I want to... Can, can you walk 10 minutes to a grocery store? That's important because mm-hmm. our guys are not having cars, you know, they don't have the sure. money for cars. So that, and most are taking buses or, or they're walking. So it's in the southwest part of, uh, of Toronto. We are expanding uh, by the end of this year to the uh, west, uh, the eastern part of Toronto in a place called Scarborough because we mm-hmm. want to have a, a breath across the city. And there are church groups in, in the, the east end that want to participate and involve because I, I think they people – I think innately with a, a church group is they believe in second chances for forgiveness mm-hmm. and, and a redemption story, right? So we get a, a church groups that are nearby to us want to assist. We have uh, the Christ Church, uh, St. James uh, Anglican Church nearby. They run a food pantry, a food bank type situation. Uh-huh. So our, they were they reached out to us and we send our, uh, our guys go there that want to use a food bank about twice a month. And it really uh-huh. helps because I mentioned earlier, if you're Ontario Works, which is the welfare program, you get $390 for, for housing, which, which we take as rent. And then you get about... $380 or so for the rest of the, your expenses the rest of the month. Not a lot of money, That's especially so in good. Toronto. It's very expensive. So yeah. the food bank has really helped the guys a lot. So the money, mm. so they get some food. So the money they're saving, they're not blowing in on, you know, there's people that go, they're going cigars or something like that. No, they, they, I know right. a lot of guys give money to their children. They, they reach out, they, they mail yeah. money away to their children. Again, they're just like you and me. They want to have family connections if they can. They probably burned a lot mm-hmm. of bridges. To, what put them in prison was they made a lot of mistakes, maybe drug addiction, et cetera. Now they're sort of wanting to get them back in the past. Sure. Their family doesn't trust them anymore. They've been burned 100 times. So they want to reach out slowly to them. So mm-hmm. living with us, they, they can stabilize themselves. They're at the same address place for a year or two years. That, that makes their family mm-hmm. feel more comfortable. When they come visit, they say, oh, this house looks nice. It's clean. The back. And the guys will. So I, I give the guys all chores. So. One one guy yeah. he likes doing gardening, so he'll he'll fix the garden beautifully. So when his family comes over, they they he can he sees this is my garden. He has a sense of pride describing it, and they feel well, right. man, you know, there's some redemption to him too. He's this is the guy I don't remember 20 years ago. Now he's a, an older mm-hmm. guy living here and gardening. Who would have think? Let's let's give it, you know, yeah. if he can change that little bit, maybe I can yes. change by giving him a chance a little bit. And that's how the stories right. go. And and you know, the volunteers help with that. It, the whole it, it is community. I. I, I know mm-hmm. the board, when we started a house, we say we want to create a community in that house that's larger mm-hmm. than the house. Larger. So what I also tell the guys, I say, you're not representing just yourself in this house, in the community. You're representing every ex-offender that gets out and wants a second chance. Mm-hmm. You have that second chance. Don't blow it for mm-hmm. the guy five years from now. 
that maybe want right. to rebuild his life and he can't find a place to live. And because of what you did, this house gr- f- fell apart, no donors, et cetera, no new houses. And then the guy hit yeah. the streets when he would have, if you know, five years otherwise, he would have been living with us, rebuilding his life, connecting with his family, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah. it's a responsibility, yeah. but I think, you know, I don't infantilize people in prison where they, again, they're just like you and me. They, they can take yeah. responsibility and, you know, they can feel accountable for their actions and they want to feel pride mm-hmm. in positive things, not negative things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to wrap up our time here. Mm. Although I have to say, I'm pretty sure that in terms of guests that I've had, mm. you have gotten more words per minute in <laughs> than most others, if not all others. Well, I'll I'm, take I'll take any compliment I can get, even that backhanded <laughs> one you just gave me. So I'll, I'll try my best. Yeah. That's awesome. No, really appreciate how you've been able to um, share with us. And I think the the speed with 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 which you speak mm. sort of matches the passion that you have for the work that you're doing and for what you know God has done in your life yes. and the the direction that he has taken you and where you are today so thank you i would encourage listeners if you're interested in knowing more about joseph and his story check out the documentary called collared mm. like he said like as in white collar collared yep. And um, the website for Restorative Justice Housing Ontario. And if you want to explore what your next steps could be or find out more about FH Canada and the Restorative Justice Housing Ontario, you can also start by checking out fhcanada.org slash resources. So, Joseph... Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm afraid now to say any more words because you're doing a word count. I'm over the limit and you'll just cut this interview <laughs> off. There's probably a tax involved somewhere in Canada I don't know about for words. Hey, I thought you wanted to pay taxes. Oh, that's true. I, that maybe now, subconsciously, I just revealed something about myself. It was great talking to you, even if I spoke more quickly than, than the average uh, ex-offender. Awesome. Appreciate you so much. Thanks, Joseph.